following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. The masters of sarcasm, those who are in charge of the fake news, the Babylon Bee. They wrote out a list of, are you a man? Are you a man? And they gave several, several uh, indicators, and they wanted you to score. So score yourself, if you would, zero, one, or two for each one of these six statements. Are these true of you? Are you a man? Uh, Number one, here's your big test. Do you enjoy thinking about absolutely nothing for long periods of time? All right? Give yourself a two if that's true of you. Uh, You want to make sure you keep score. Number two. Are you incapable of finding the milk in the fridge even while staring directly at it? Okay, give yourself a score. Number three, do you refer to a team of professional athletes who have no idea who you are as we? Do you do that? That's number three. Number four, can you effortlessly win at every women's sport? (laughs) Okay, number five, can you navigate unfamiliar roads but are hopelessly lost in the mall. Anyone, two points. And then number six, would you be completely and utterly helpless without your spouse? Okay, two points there. All right, so now understand, if you rated yourself, give yourself a total, and somewhere you're between 10 and 12, you're definitely a man. Between eight and nine, you're starting to look kind of, you know, like a dude. Uh, Six to seven, you're getting some real masculine vibes there, but anything below six, and you're probably a small chance you're a woman, okay? So there's the the score. We live in a society, would you agree, that uh, is continually changing, and the role of man is continually changing, and redefining actually the meaning of masculinity. In fact, men are looking for something solid to hang on to, and there's nothing to hang on to today but dusty cobwebs and men's opinions. For centuries, society actually had a definition of manhood. It was handsome, provider, warrior, protector, uh, a decision maker. But now even that is changing and has changed. Today, a man must be good looking but not aware of it, intelligent but not heady, uh, mechanical but not grimy, masculine but not overmastering, firm but not inflexible, self-assured but not conceited, loyal but not patronizing, ambitious but not workaholic. You want me to go on? Um, He's aggressive but not pushy, gentle but not feminine, knowledgeable but not a show-off, agreeable but not a yes-man, even-tempered but not boring, generous but not extravagant, relaxed but not lazy, courageous but not foolish. How do you like that tension? Interesting, add to that, with all the gender now being intentionally rewritten into anything and to everything, men are afraid and young men are confused. But here's the good news, Christ is not. It's not. Jesus Christ made this world, and when he made this world, he made men, and he made women, and he made each of the only two sexes to be designed with a specific, detailed design and role. If you have submitted your life to Jesus Christ, then with that comes a submission to his word, the Bible, And with that desire that he has put in your life for obedience will come a pursuit of his will when it comes to his design for men and his design for women. What you and I desperately need today is to study Christ's original blueprint, 
found in God's Word over the roles of men and women. Interesting enough, today you must know it, you must love it, you must obey it, and you must really pursue exactly what His design is or you're going to get off-center. You can't merely embrace your own role. You can't merely just trust in culture. In fact, Christian women need to know what Christian men are expected to do, and Christian men need to know what Christian women are supposed to do. You need to understand them both in order to actually experience what God designed for you. And this week is for men, and next week is for women. In our day, you cannot be silent. You cannot be indifferent. You cannot be passive any longer. Society's gone. Their understanding of God's design is gone. And therefore, the normal expectations of your children is no longer there. You cannot allow this to occur in a vacuum. The very character of God is at stake. Do you understand that? Men and women function the way they do because God is a triune God. There is a oneness, and yet there are three distinct persons in the triune God. And therefore, that's the design of God in relationships and in marriage. Marriage is one, and yet in marriage there are three distinct people husband, wife, and Jesus Christ for the Christian. And so there is that sense of husband's and wife relationship is even to demonstrate Christ in the church. God made men responsible to lead their homes and this church. And as the men go, so do our homes and so does our church. As my friend Phil DeCourcy says, in a day when boys act like girls, men act like boys, and women act like men, we desperately need a biblical understanding and we have to keep pressing our children to understand. There are books like this that have been written for children to understand God's image, Boys and Girls, uh, written by Marty Machowski, and helping children understand the gift of gender. There are things to clarify early on in age that they need to understand exactly what God designed because they are not going to get the message from the media. They're not going to get it at school. They're not going to get it anywhere except if you give it to them from the Scripture. Can I hear an Amen. That's where it's got to come from, and today's message is just a taste. It's just a taste. The books were actually written for every marriage of any age, fathers to disciple their sons, mothers to disciple their daughters, for singles, collegians, high school students, even some ambitious junior hires to study both roles so that they might fully embrace God's perfect design for men and women at any age, in any culture, at any time in history. This is transcultural. It is God's word. It stands for every generation. So if you're ready, grab onto your hand rest and get your Bible open to Titus chapter 2, and we're going to dig in with a brief overview today just to test. But understand the Cretans, who Paul is writing, were having a hard time putting their beliefs into behavior. So there's a lot of talk about sound doctrine, which is healthy doctrine in verse 1. And basically in Titus chapter 2, he's instructing Titus here to basically deal with every age group and every sex, and he's given the very specific instructions on how to live out God's design in this very, very difficult culture. And in verses 2 and 3, he gives all the qualities uh, to the senior adults, and he basically says, listen, you should have these that we're going to talk about in just a minute already down, and he calls the older women to train the younger women as to their design in verses 4 and 5, which we'll look at next week. And Paul describes then God's role for younger men in verses 6 through 8, 6 through 8. And he calls Titus to pursue that same role because Titus at this time is also a young man from 0 to 40 is the general reference. And verses 6 through 8 represent the male qualities that you seniors have already got down 
that you're also to have young men to pursue. And ladies, these are the qualities you're to look for when you're looking for a young man. These are God's character goals for men. What are they? They are mentally, we're to be sensible. Theologically, we're to be pure in doctrine. Visually, an example of good deeds. Socially, we're to be dignified. Verbally, sound in speech. You say, Chris, I didn't get them down. Let's go. We'll look at them one at a time. Ready? Number one, mentally, men are to be sensible. Sensible. Titus 2, verse 6. Take a look at what he says. He says, likewise, urge the young men to be, say the word, sensible. In order for a godly guy to be a truly godly man, the Christian male must be a thinking man. A thinking man. He must make decisions using a spirit-controlled mind. Now, there are times that we lose our minds, guys. We understand that. Uh, One man I know about who was hit on the head at work, and he was so knocked out that everybody thought he was dead, so they sent him to the funeral home. And no kidding, he woke up the next morning in a coffin, and he sat up, and he said this to himself. He said, "Uh, wait a minute. What in the world, if I'm alive, what am I doing in this soft, satin-filled box? And if I'm dead, why do I have to go to the bathroom? He was totally disoriented. Even in this fast lane society, we cannot be living by our feelings or living in a state of disorientation or confusion. Young men are not to do that. Men are not to do that. Live by emotion, but by our minds. In fact, young men are to exercise common sense in all of life. It's sensible. The word sensible in Greek comes from the root word meaning safe. You create safety. It's sound. It it really means and is used in Scripture, you write these down, sound judgment, common sense, self-control. Those are the qualities that are to be developed in a godly man and it has reference to avoiding excess in every area of your life showing oneself to be self-restraining constantly in the exercise of self-government you're not out of control you're under control under the, the the lord's control under the spirit control under the word's direction sensibility is really not a very glamorous issue but it's the very stuff of life It's what men desperately need. In fact, Proverbs talks about it with different terms in 1632 there in your outline. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. He's saying, look, it's better to to have that under control than to do great things. In fact, young men are not to be like Alexander the Great who could conquer the entire world but at the age of 33 died in a drunken stupor. In other words, he he could conquer the world, but he wasn't in in control of himself. Sensibility and sensibly saved men are to be in control of themselves, and they're to live a life marked with common sense wisdom. Is it important? It was to the Holy Spirit, as he directed Paul to write these words, sensibility is the number one character quality, not the number one exhortation, but the number one character quality in the book of Titus. It's something that they desperately needed. It's repeated five times to elders, older men, younger women, young men, and all believers that will live sensibly in the midst of an unthinking generation. Do we live in an unthinking generation? Just watch the news, friends. There's no thinking going on anymore. It's all emotive, it's all manipulative, etc. And that's the kind of culture that actually was on Crete. It was so bad, look what Paul said about the Cretan culture in chapter 1, verse 12 and 14. Take a look at it. It says, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, a Cretan prophet, 
said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is what? It's true. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths or commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Understand, do you hear what Paul's saying there? They live in a culture that's always lying. Deception is everywhere. Do we live in that kind of day? They're living in a culture where they're lazy gluttons. There's no control over their appetites. They're evil beasts manifesting wild behavior. They're paying attention to myths. They're listening to human assertions and not God's word. So instead of spiritually controlling their lives by obediently believing and heeding the word of God, they were living by their feelings, their desires, their thinking. We would say in our day by science or opinion or the news. The sensible young man must first be in control of himself. Young men, men are to be in control of themselves in order to direct their own lives and lead others as God expects. You, you cannot live your life like Christopher Columbus, right? You understand Christopher Columbus, right? Uh, you know, understand that when he discovered America, first, he didn't know where he was going. Second, when he got there, he didn't know where he was. And third, when he got back, he didn't know where he'd been, okay? We can't be that way. We got to be beyond that. Just like an orderly businessman kind of orders his day, just like a construction worker will follow the blueprint, God's men, truly biblical men, will be those who sensibly plan and follow through with their plans in order to accomplish God's will, God's word for their lives. Now, practically, what does that mean? It's pretty simple. To be sensible, you're looking through the lens of Scripture and God's character to plan your prayer life, to plan your study, to plan your time in the Word, to plan your, who you're going to evangelize, who you're going to disciple, who you're going to be discipled by, who you're going to basically influence. You're going to plan what's best for my spouse, what's best for my kids. You're going to walk through that, what's most needed for them, and plan sensibly. You're going to initiate in fact, the sensible single man has learned that relationships are not based merely upon appearance, but upon character, upon faithfulness, upon reputation. Proverbs 22 tells us, a good name is to be chosen over great wealth. A good name, a reputation. When you're looking for a life partner, a sensible young man searches for a woman who loves Christ more than she loves him. They look for a gal who's proven in ministry. Why? So they can function within the context of the church because this is what God has called all Christians to. They, 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 uh, proven a woman who, who disciples others because that's parenting. And you'll know what kind of parent she's going to be if she's discipling others. She'll, that's the whole process. And proven in living out her role as a daughter because that will demonstrate that she could live out her role as a wife. The sensible man knows where he's going. Listen, sometimes men just don't plan which means they're not sensible. And listen, when you aim at nothing, you hit it every single time. Are you getting it? You have to have plans. So the sensible young man makes goals that are measurable, achievable. I'm going to be 30 minutes in prayer. I'm going to encourage three people today. They're going to set specific things that are measurable because biblical men, godly men, God's design for men is that they would be sensible. That's number one. Second quality that Titus lays out for us, and Paul points out in verse 7, he says, in all things show yourself to be an example of what? Good deeds. Okay, that was a great response. So here we go. Show yourself to be an example of, visually, men are to be examples of good deeds. 
Yeah, all of you have seen a, a, a road race, right? You've seen one of those big NASCAR events. They have a pace car. Remember the pace car? Pace car gets out. Everybody kind of sets the same speed. They're all going around the track. That's the job of the godly man. That's the job of men, to set a pace for others around them. To be, basically, you're chosen by God to lead your family by example, to lead others by example. You're to show the way and set the pace by the example of your own life in Christ. That's what Paul is telling Titus to the men at Crete here. You're not to be complacent about your role as a man or as a father, but you pursue it to set a pace. You practice what you preach. You live before you lay down the law. You demonstrate before you make demands. It's part of your nature. It's who you are. The single man is to be a good deed doer as well, unlike the obese doctor who's trying to tell you how to lose weight. Or the bald man who's saying, hey, this hair restorer really works. Understand that a godly man recognizes that whatever he wants others to grow to be, he's got to be first. You've got to initiate. Your influence is seen through your life example. That's what Paul is saying here. Men are called to live every aspect of their lives as an example. That word example, it actually comes from the Greek word tupos, which means type. And what it meant was it left an impression. When they made coins, they used a tupas. And he's saying, you're the tupas. You're leaving the impression on the people around you as a father, as a man. You're to make an impression. The question is, what kind of impression are you making? You're to be that example, that tupas. Paul calls young men to be examples of what? Of good deeds. And we know salvation, obviously, is by grace through faith alone. And yet, we also know that faith without works is what? Oh, thank you for saying that. James was not in vain. Understand, the faith that saves is never alone. And saving faith results in works. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 says that God has actually already sovereignly pre-chosen the good works that you will live out in this life. It's already preordained for you. But that does not negate your dependent obedience and the empowerment on the Spirit of God to work through you in order for you to actively produce good deeds. In other words, only God is good. And the only works that can truly be good are those that are done for Him and by Him through you. Through you. So good deeds are actions done for the glory of God in the power of the Spirit that point to the person of Christ. I'll say it again. Good deeds are those actions done for the glory of God in the power of the Spirit pointing to the person of Christ. And it's so important that Paul, when he writes Titus here, it's so important to them to do these good deeds. It's listed six times in Titus. Here's three of them. Six times, he says, to be doing good deeds. Can you imagine that? In this three-chapter book, he says in Titus 2.14, be zealous for good deeds. That means be an enthusiastic fanatic for good deeds. In Titus chapter 3, verse 1, he says, be ready for good deeds. That means be willing and prepared to do good deeds. And then Titus 3.8 says to be engaging in good deeds, which means to busy yourself with good deeds. Men, when you come home, it's not time to hit the easy chair. It's time to manifest good deeds. When you're at work, you're doing good deeds. When you're on the road, you're doing good deeds. When you're at church, you're doing good deeds. We are to be known for what? Good deeds. There you go. Go after it every day. Pursue it. And when Paul wrote verse 7 
He said, show yourself. You see that there, that phrase, show yourself to be an example? Show yourself is actually emphatic here. He's going, you, Titus, and you, you Cretan Christians, you show yourself. You make sure you do this. In fact, it's very, very emphasized. In fact, the word show there is ongoing. So he's saying, I'm not just looking for random occasions where you could be a part of showing good deeds. This needs to be a part of every aspect of your life. You're to be known for good deed doing. Say, how is that possible? How does that work? Are you ready? You have to have regular ministry in the church. You're responsible to fulfill every week. Men, you don't understand, and you don't minister in the church. If you don't, you don't understand the importance and impact of good deeds. In fact, Titus, here he is, the apostolic assistant to the apostle Paul in the first century church, a great man of great leadership, and Paul says to this great man, be an example of good deeds. Make sure you're an example of it. Even in your witness in the world, we're to be known for good deed doing and practicing good deeds. Look what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. He's talking about lost people at this point. So that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your what? Good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. It's basically an aid to your gospel sharing, both in the church and in the world. You're to be impacting others by the regular exercise of good deeds. And it's not just the big upfront good deeds, okay? Uh, But the little unobserved secret saint cards, gifts, encouragements. Listen, friends, great occasions for serving God seldom come, but little ones surround you daily. Surround you daily. There, there's a negative side to this too. You got to be careful. To exhort, men who exhort without example are Pharisees. Right? Don't be the Pharisee father. Don't be the Sadducee son who don't practice what they preach. No, godly men instruct them in the word and impact them with their good deeds. The Spirit is probably because he was for me punching you in the stomach right now because you're not merely looking for an occasional opportunity to good deed doing but Titus is actually saying here you're to be an example for others in the good deeds that you do it's to be a standard number three theologically men are to be pure in doctrine theologically men are to be pure in doctrine Look at verse 7. It says, with purity in doctrine. And when Paul writes the word pure here, he means uncorrupt and free from taint. Men are to pursue truth that will not decay, it will not decompose. Uh, our, our teaching is to be consistent in life and biblical in content. And Paul is addressing Titus, his apostolic assistant here, and he's including him with the young men because Titus is a young man here. So he says, you all do this. And so be pure in doctrine. In this context, this is for all men. And Paul already warned all the Cretan Christians on Crete and Titus as well. In Titus 1.14, not paying attention, Titus 1.14, to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So Paul, he calls all men to believe pure doctrine and to live biblical doctrine. Interesting enough, you, you drive your car without a timing belt, or the timing belt is off a little bit, it chugs, right? 
it doesn't work, and sometimes it shuts down, right? Are you with me on this? The timing belt, pretty important to making the car work well. Well, pure doctrine's the same way. Pure doctrine functions in your life like a good timing belt. It keeps a man's spiritual life running smoothly and effectively. And those men who live by the timeless truths in the Bible have God's wisdom and strength to empower them. On the other hand, if the principles that you live by are wrong or they're mixed, or they're diluted, or they're, you know, ignored in some way, your spiritual timing's going to be off, and you're going to lack direction, and you're going to lack power in your spiritual life. God wants you men to passionately pursue truth, to apply the Word of God. And when Paul charges Titus here to be pure in doctrine, the Greek word for pure there is no corruption, no spoiling, no leading astray. Now, you all know this, when you mix white paint with a little bit of a color, it's tainted, right? It's off color. When you add water to gasoline, its power is diluted, and the chances of doing damage to your engine are pretty high. Understand, it's the same with biblical truth. Doctrine is to remain unmixed. And what we have today is we have men who are mixing God's word, doctrine, with uh, human wisdom, with business ideas with psychological concepts or with hermeneutics to justify a a theological system in such a way that basically it destroys the purity power and effectiveness clarity of God's word it's no longer God's word it's a distorted word it's not living and active but dead and lifeless some of you you've seen the pan of brownies right that just comes out of the oven. Come on, you've seen it. You've smelt it. Come on, guys. You, don't you start to drool or gleek a little bit? You smell it, and it's like, oh, this is so awesome. And as soon as your wife says, you know, accidentally, a little bit of Fufu's little poop excrement, you know, went into the brownies, it doesn't have the same reaction, does it? Are you with me on this? Does it, please answer correctly, does it ruin the brownies for you? Yeah, that's what bad doctrine does it ruins the truth and jesus warns us with these words look at matthew chapter 15 it says this people honors me with their lips but their heart is what far from me but in vain do they worship me why because they're teaching as doctrines the ideas the commands the traditions of men and practically jesus is calling men to live what you learn to behave what you believe. What that means is that you've got to avoid certain things. Avoid situations like, obey the law, son, and you're constantly speeding. Unless you're on the 15 freeway, then everybody has to speed. Okay, so I don't, I don't know what that is. In fact, you're in the slow lane, and, and if you're not going 3,000 miles an hour, they're honking at you. Um, I don't get that. You know, when you say to your kids, listen in church, kids, but you never take notes, you never review the sermon. Or you say, you let your mother decide when God has called you to lead. Understand, adding to that practical truth, you should move from devotionals to doctrine. From milk to meat. You know what, just as a steady diet of junk food is going to be bad for your physical health, a steady diet of spiritual junk food is going to be the same damaging effect to your spiritual life. It's exactly the same. And God is calling you to pursue pure, undiluted truth god's word as written move from the bib to the apron learn to feed yourself what steps are you taking actually to learn god's word as a man now at our church there's absolutely no excuse 
for you. There's so many opportunities for you to be learning the Word of God. When a man is pure in doctrine, what happens is the Scripture becomes their compass. The Scripture becomes the lens that he looks at life through, the filter. Their food, their necessary food, as, as Job called it, their, their treasure, the thing that they delight in more than anything, and the lens which they look through all of life. The Scripture becomes that when they're pure in doctrine. Number four, socially, men are to be dignified. Dignified. Uh, this is the one that scares me the most. Uh, most of you know my Hawaiian grandpa name is Cuckoo. And everybody that knows me goes, man, that fits, okay? And, uh, and honestly, I'm looking at my life and I'm making funny faces. I'm doing silly songs. I'm, I'm, I'm doing crazy experiments with slime and soda. I'm making water balloons constantly in the ocean, balloons everywhere, uh, you know, driving my kids crazy because my grandkids have this stuff all over the place. Uh, I, I'm making crazy voices. I do funny faces constantly. Do I lack dignity? Is that what dignity means? I mean, I want all three grandsons to know that I'm a man who loves Christ and follow his word, but I also want to be really fun. I want to be approachable. Do I lack dignity? <clears throat> I mean, the word dignified is a scary word. Would you agree with that? Come on. Doesn't that scare you guys? I don't want to be dignified. That's stuffy. It's almost impossible to act out in a game of charades how to basically portray dignity. It's a quality that is a blend of humility, it's a blend of courtesy, it's a blend of seriousness, and it's a blend of respectfulness. The difficulty in defining dignity is that, it, that you don't really, <clears throat> you know, because it's so hard to define, it doesn't make it any less important to understand and to practice. In verse 7, the Greek word there, dignified, is a quality of life, you might want to write this down, that inspires respect. It inspires respect. And a brief survey of 1 Timothy 3 will tell you that dignity is required of an elder, a deacon, and a woman who assist deacons. And in Titus 2, you might want to get shocked by this because it shocked me, that dignity is a required quality for both older men and younger men. All men are called to be dignified. So what is it? It's that quality that commands respect. It's the one that earns the right to be heard. It's the one that's sincerely believable, and it's the quality that is seen as clear in purpose. What that means is, everybody knows who you live for. Everybody knows what your life is about. Everybody. It's obvious. Being dignified, this is an encouragement to me, doesn't mean you don't smile. It doesn't mean you don't enjoy life. It doesn't mean you don't have a sense of humor. There are certain cultures that interpret it that way. I mean, you talk to them and they never smile, they never enjoy life, they're just dead. And that is not what God called dignified. Dignified is living with the constant awareness that you're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Catch this phrase, are you ready? Write it down, you are Christ's dignitary. Do you get the word in there? Dignity, dignitary. You live on earth as a citizen of heaven. You live life in the presence of God. You live filled with His Spirit, empowered by Him. You take the Lord, His Word, His mission seriously, but you don't take yourself seriously at all. It's not about you. It's about who? Answer? Christ. So when you're watching TV, guys, 
and the referee makes a really bad call that costs your team the championship, do you scream and yell at the flat screen, or do you drop to your knees in attitude of prayer? Which one, okay? Now, that's a very bad illustration of dignity, all right? I just didn't, couldn't overlook it. Men, are you free to play with your kids as well as pray for your kids? Can you talk to your teens as well as jive and have fun and joke with your teens? And will they respect you in both roles? That's a dignified man. For dignity, just write down these three R's and you'll get it right. Are you ready? Write them down. The man who is dignified is respectful, he's responsible, and he's a representative of Christ. He's respectful, he's responsible, and he's a representative of Christ on earth. Now, if you have a certain Bible, certain translations, the word incorruptible or sincerity is next in Titus 2, but it is not listed in the best text. So the fifth goal of the Christian man is, number five in your outline, to verbally to be men who are sound in speech. Verbally sound in speech. Not only are you to be mentally sensible, visibly an example of good deeds, theologically pure in doctrine, socially dignified, but you are also to pursue the goal of being verbally sound in speech. Now, verse 8, it says this. Take a look at it, verse 8. The whole verse is about this. It's sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent might be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Today, we have pastors who cuss. But what is God's will for your talk, pastor or not? Well, you know what the Bible says about your speech. Take a look at Ephesians 4.29. You know it. Just look at it one more time. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as good for edification, building you up, strengthening you, encouraging you, according to the need of the moment. The timing is everything. You don't always say everything that comes to your mind, the first thing that comes to your mind. Timing is essential that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't allow worthless words to come out. Only those that build up the hearer, only at the appropriate moment. Look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, making it tasty so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Your conversation on the patio, your conversations when you're hanging out with friends, your conversations when you're doing private talk and personal talk is to be so gracious people might actually think about Jesus Christ. You say, why is that? Why is it? Because your speech is absolutely powerful. Absolutely. You know how powerful it is? Take a look at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Is that powerful? Proverbs 12, 25. Good words can make an anxious heart glad. Good words have the opportunity to change the direction of a person's life. And every single person in this room knows that's true. I had conversations with my mentor, I had conversations with my mom, I had conversations with my dad that changed the course of my life. Anybody else in the room? Changed the course of my life. Just a simple conversation. Understand, I also have had words that have come out of my mouth that the moment they exited, I wanted to reel them back in and regretted every moment that they were spoken. Because our words are to be sound, healthy, 
healthy. The word sound there is the Greek word hagias, where we get the English word hygiene. And yes, it is what I say to my wife, Jean, every morning, hygiene, all right? Now understand, I'll keep saying it until you stop laughing, but understand, more than that, sound means safe and clean. It means actually clean words. And Paul adds speech that is above reproach. You test your words before you verbalize them. Test them. That's exactly what the Bible commands you. The Bible commands you in Psalm 39, verse 1, I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle. Wow. Psalm 141, verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Why? Because Ephesians 5, 4 says, There must be no filthiness, no silly talk, no coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather of giving a thanks. So how do you guard your speech? Well, there's a bunch of things that come out of James that we've been studying, but let me, let me give you one thing, all right? One thing that you can do to guard your speech that's so valuable that you got to write it down. Are you ready? Talk less. Talk less. You say, that's not biblical. Oh, yes, it is, my friends. It is exactly biblical. In fact, it says, well, you know, you keep talking, you're going to sin, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, when there are many words, transgression is what? Unavoidable. So he who restrains his lips is wise. The Bible even says if you remain silent, you know what? Just stop talking and people think you're smart. That's what the proverb says, 1721. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. Just stand in the group and keep nodding. People go, man, he really understands. <laughs> when he closes his lips, he's prudent. I mean, look at this guy. He's a genius. Doctor Paul concludes the challenge to young men with this in verse 8. Take a look. So that the opponent, look at verse 8 now, may be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. This is a hostile world, and there are going to be more and more people saying things about your faith. When you start living your man role, you start living your woman role in this society, and people are going to attack back. You need to understand this is a hostile world. And in a hostile world, to put that opponent to shame, basically what he's saying here is that our words reveal our hearts. What comes out of your mouth is what is actually in your heart. And therefore, your speech reveals the transformation that Christ had made in our hearts. And our speech is a big deal of our witness. Our words make Christians unique. Listen, when everybody else is swearing, you should be sweet. When everybody else is crude, you should be Christ-like. Our speech is to be so refreshing that those who are lost, Paul says to Titus, to the Cretans, that they should have nothing bad to say about us. Nothing bad to say about us. In fact, now why should Titus and the young men pursue all these goals? Well, if the false teacher was to put Titus or the young men on trial, there'd be no accusation. That's literally what he's saying here. No accusation. And what is so exciting is that when you, you know, seek to be this man, you can become this man. Now, you'll never be it perfectly, but the Lord never commands you, never lays out things in the Scripture that He does not empower. He will empower you to become this kind of man. His design for men and His design for women is perfect, and anything short of that is going to be less than perfect, less than His design. And you can taste of his blessing when you pursue this plan, especially with these final challenges. Letter A in your outline, 
godly men take the lead. Godly men take the lead. Men are assigned to be the head. You can't get around headship, my friends. It means leadership. It does. You are to lead your homes. That doesn't mean that you run around telling everybody what to do. It means that you're the example. You're the one that goes to the Lord first. You're the one that says, let's do what Christ says first. You lead in your homes. You lead in this church. And as you pursue these qualities, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't do it in your own strength, but by His power, you will be a blessing to this church. You will be respected in your homes. And you will be a fruitful witness in this world. They may mock you, they may even attack you, but they will want what you have because you will be uniquely different. Take the lead in pursuing these qualities in Titus 2. We've got to fight for it in our day, do we not? We've got to fight for it. We're now not just going upstream. We're going up river. We're going up, uh, I mean, waterfalls here. This is a big deal. Letter B, godly men are to become pure in doctrine. If you're, you know, then you will make a commitment to get serious about studying the Word and applying these truths. You will get serious about studying the Word and applying these qualities. Five days a week, be reminded that godly men are to be Monday mentally sensible. Should be your best day. Tuesday, visually, an example of good deeds. Boy, won't they be blessed on that day. Wednesday, theologically pure in doctrine. Thursday, socially dignified. Friday, verbally sound in speech. You get the weekends off. You could just part. No, you know, you do all five on the weekends. Letter C. Godly men must be in Christ. You know what? Here's the day. Here's the challenge. Step up, men. You remain marginal, and no one's ever going to know where you're at with Christ. Today, you can't be marginal. You can't just float along in Christendom. You've got to take a stand. You've got to step up and be a man. And the only way to be an assured believer is to live out Christ, that Christ is in you. You're separated. You understand that, all the men in this room. You understand that you are separated from God because of your sin, because you've gone your own way, you've done your own thing. We all have sinned, all of us, and fall short of the glory of God. And understand you're separated from Christ because of that sin. But if you believe that God became a man in the person of Christ, and that he died on the cross by taking the punishment that you deserve for your sin, and then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And if you then turn from your sin in your heart that he allows you to do, and pursue him in dependent faith, and if you seek to follow him and allow him to work through you as he regenerates you, gives you a new heart that wants to follow him, that you can actually live God's design for men. You can actually become a true let the men be men. Stop grabbing at cultural definitions. Stop listening to what they say a man is or how they warped it for us over so many decades and become the man you were created to be laid out in the Scripture by Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take your word and that you would change our lives. And Father, we would ask that if there are any here who don't know you, that you would take your word and convict them and draw them to yourself, that they would see that they are hopeless and helpless unless they have Christ in them, that we cannot live the Christian life without Christ, 
This is not about morals. This is about a genuine regeneration, a genuine transformation, a genuine justification where now their sin falls on Christ and his righteousness covers them, giving them the robe that they can stand in God's presence forever. Help them to see their desperate need. And for the rest of us, may we seriously take upon ourselves the responsibility of depending on your spirit and walking according to your word in these areas. It was such a big deal to Paul to explain to Titus what was desperately needed on Crete, and it's the same need today, that we would live these truths. We know, Father, we desperately need your power to do so, and Father, we want to be energized by a desire that says we want to please you and worship you with all our lives, and that means following according to the truth of your word, and we'll give you the glory for what you do. We thank you and praise you because you deserve it all. We want to worship you by not just singing a song, but Lord, by actually living a way that would please you. And we thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.